Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. Uh, we're glad that you can join us as we continue discussing Isaiah. Ken can't join us uh, this evening. He will be missed, and uh, we'll have to wait for his insights uh, for another week until he joins us for our recording next week. Uh, my name's Cameron. I'm definitely here and looking forward to today's discussion. And my name is Luke, and I'm thrown by the lack of Ken mm-hmm. and almost missed my cue. And I'm Lachlan. Right. Uh, the passage from Isaiah is uh, a great one this week. We might jump straight in. Lock, do you want to start reading? And I think you're going to pick up from the end of Isaiah 52. Yep, Isaiah 52, starting from about verse 13. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so dif- disfigured he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one could scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not been told, and they will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Right, there's a lot to talk about here. And in in the past, in our discussion, we have not quite... um, We haven't been overly enthusiastic in in buying into some of the Messianic texts, in as much as some of them um, uh, have more local, uh, immediate meaning than is suggested by taking the the texts out of reference. We've also mentioned that the fact the fact that they had uh, some local uh, meaning in that time and place doesn't preclude them from being messianic. Uh, uh, but we've certainly seen a sort to uh, achieve a nuanced view. This passage seems to be much more overwhelmingly messianic. Mm. It, it does. In fact, it's hard. It's hard as a Christian to see anything else in it because it is so resonant with what we know of Christ's life. And it is much more abstract, uh, couched in sort of abstract general terms. It's not 
in the middle of a passage about the king of Assyria or, or you know, some local political event. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if anything, it, it follows on from what we were discussing last week, the theme of the Lord's servant. Obviously, the passage we read today, starting at the end of Isaiah 52, it starts with a description, see, my servant will prosper. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's more in the context of describing this theme of the servant of the Lord, which over the preceding couple of chapters before Isaiah 52, has the theme has oscillated backwards and forwards between appearing to apply collectively to um, Israel and appearing to apply, apply specifically to a person with a singular pronoun. Here, this is a sustained passage with it being uh, written in very clearly personal terms. Yes, there's an interesting passage at the start, Locke. What verse is it where, where it says that he's so disfigured that he was hardly recognisable as a man? Yeah, that's, that's Isaiah 52 verse 14. Yeah, I performed in, um, in Shakespeare's The Tempest when I was at, at Attenborough, and I played the part of Caliban. One of the lines I most remember was not one of my lines. It was a line that someone else said about my character. And they, they encounter Caliban on the beach and they say, Is it a man? Or is it a fish? Uh, it smells like a fish. It has a most ancient and fish-like smell. <laughs> That's great. Well, the smell of the servant of the Lord is not touched on in this passage yeah. in Isaiah. But you're right. His face was so so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. That's what it says. Yes. There's something else funny going on here, even in those opening verses. There's a there's a, a, a switching. Um, what switched? No, I thought a tense switched. I'm always I'm always really cautious about getting into things like details of the grammar because I just don't know if it's something in the translation. Mm. You know, uh, this passage has I think some more generic insights beyond its messianic tones. There is, uh, you know, some instruction in here about w- what being a servant of God looks like. Uh, yes, yes. As 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 you mentioned right in the intro, Cam, mm. we we haven't really focused on the messianic themes of Isaiah, which I and and part of that is probably because our church, the SDA church, only focuses on the messianic yeah. themes of Isaiah, and so it was simply. So that we could all look and talk, read and, and talk about something different, but but you you stated and uh, repeat it because it bears emphasizing. Yeah, we're not denying those themes. We're saying that they can coexist alongside yes. other themes, and vice versa. In in this very messianic passage, you know, and to, we're talking about the servant being the Messiah. It can also be applied to any of God's servants. Mm. Um, and then if you really want to get into it as well, you can refer to the New Testament verses where it talks about the church being the body of Christ yeah. and, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, it's absolutely both. We place a lot of emphasis on, on being servants and servant leadership is all the rage. I've noticed <laughs> I've noticed in my more cynical moments that, that the leaders often who most espouse servant leadership... Uh, reserve the right to decide in what capacity they'll serve. Well, so here's an interesting insight I had, because we do like to throw the term servant leadership around, and it's it's a bit of a buzzword, mm. I would say, among 
among our church uh, administration and institutions. But here's an interesting question to ponder while Lachlan continues to analyze grammar. <laughs> is, if you're a servant leader, who are you the servant of? This is exactly it. Servant surely involves, if it involves anything else, the, the loss of autonomy. Well, so here's the point. If you're talking about... If you're talking about servant leadership in a Christian context, and you're looking at a verse like Isaiah to sort of uh, not justify, because you don't have to justify anything, but to to underpin, to inform as the basis for your idea of servant leadership, then you're not actually a servant of your subordinates, the people that you're leading. The servant is a servant of God. Uh, I'm more comfortable with that, Luke. I, I can I can see how that could work. I think. Um, I think that is not the context in which the the phrase is often used. No, it's not. Yeah. It's all. It's almost always used to mean a servant of the people you're leading. Yeah. And having done a fair, having had a lead, leadership experiences myself, and having done a fair amount of an amount of leadership training, I can tell you my personal opinion on that yeah. definition of servant leadership: that you're a servant of the people you're leading, and that is that it's nonsense. It doesn't work. And nobody who says they're doing it is actually doing it because you don't do what your subordinates tell you to do, no. which is the servant-master relationship. Yeah, exactly. And if you do do what they tell you to do, you do a very bad job. Yeah. So, so that sort of servant leadership is garbage. Yeah, I don't exactly. It's exactly. It, it can't be the case. And what it usually turns out in practice is someone says, "I will serve you," and um, and someone might say, "Well." Uh, um, you know, I really need some help on Wednesday afternoon. Actually, I'm not free on Wednesdays. Um, I'm going to serve you on Tuesdays and Thursday mornings because that's the time when I'm available to serve. And I'll be in, able to serve you in these roles uh, towards these ends. And what you discover is that that there's actually a fair amount of leadership going on in terms of them deciding the agenda of what happens. And not much serventing. There's also the danger of sort of a false... M- piety or false modesty uh, when you when you imagine that uh, you can think pretty good about yourself because you're being a servant uh, and it helps assuage your conscience for being a leader because we're a bit worried about the you know possible dangers of, of pride uh, so uh, this is not 100% cynical maybe maybe 72% cynical but um, uh, but, you know, you feel a bit uncomfortable in the position of leadership. So there is a genuine effort for people to try and think of ways that they can serve so that it doesn't go to their head. I mean, I think that there's there's value in the idea. But there's also, it's also a phrase you can buy into just to give you, to, to scratch a spiritual itch. I'm reading now from um, Adrian Plass's Sacred Diary where he's going down to visit the rehearsal of his son's band, which is called Bad News for the Devil. And Bad News for the Devil plays very loud enthusiastic uh, music, uh, very Christian. Uh, the lyrics of their uh, first song that they wrote are peace will come, 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 what will come, peace will come. So a very enthusiastic group of young people. And this is what he writes. I strolled down to Unity Hall again tonight to hear Bad News for the Devil. Gerald tells me that Elsie, Flute, and William, vocal hysteria, are deeply in love with each other. Doesn't seem to have slowed him down at all. When he sings, the words still come out of him like rats from a burning building. 
He told me afterwards that if the Lord leads him into being an international rock star, he's prepared to be an obedient servant, even if it means travelling all over the world and staying in expensive hotels and earning huge amounts of money. <laughs> oh, the sacrifice. <laughs> yes, I do like Adrian Plus. But it, it is, yeah, I think putting that aside, and I don't want to spend the rest of this podcast criticising the way that that type of, that definition of servant leadership is misused. But putting that to one side, I think it's really interesting to consider a leader who is being a servant of God and what the implications are for that, um, as opposed opposed to any other definition. Well, see, this is the interesting thing, isn't it, Luke? Because that would involve, if we are going to be servants of God, that will involve us doing many acts of service for other people. So, yes. It does mean that that restores some men. This is giving me more faith in the phrase servant leadership because Christ was a servant leader in the sense that he did acts of service for many people. It's just that he didn't take direction from them. Mm. So he didn't lord it over yes. them. He, he, he did humble jobs and he hung out with humble people and he looked after them. But he very much had an agenda that was set by God. He didn't let the people decide, you know, how he should act and behave. Yes, he, he was God's servant. He did what God told him to do, not what other people told him to do. Mm. So you have to be clear who, who you are the servant of. Yeah, but one of the things God wants us to do is acts of service to other people. Yes. So, you know, the, the end result or the result in a specific circumstance of these two definitions of servant leader might be very similar. Mm. But the end result is also not the only important bit of mm. Mm. all of this. You know, as Christians, we never believe that the end result is the only important part. Mm. Um, Except for eternal salvation, Luke. The end result is never the only important part. Mm. I found the thing... All right, we've filled enough time. Go, Lockheed. Yeah, yeah. It it does. There's, there's a will. Something will happen in the future, and there's things that have happened in the past. So where we started in Isaiah 52, verse 13, see my servant will prosper, he will be highly exalted, sudden switch to past tense, but many were amazed when they saw him. His face was disfigured. But then in verse 15, and he will startle many nations, kings kings will stand speechless in his presence. It's switching backwards Mm. and forwards, and that drew my attention to the fact that actually a lot of this bit that is the most messianic to our ears, is actually all written in past tense. He was despised, and we did not care. It was our weaknesses he carried. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was beaten. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet never said a word. He was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants. The whole thing is written in past tense. Quick question. Do we know what happened to Isaiah in his life? Wasn't he cut into pieces or something? Yeah, that rings a bell, Cam. I need to, I'll just do a quick Google search. Because it is certainly true of the prophets that A, they were servants of God, and B, they didn't have a comfortable go of it, generally speaking, and they often came to very unpleasant ends because they spoke truth to power. Mm. And that is a, a uh, activity that tends to get you um, punished. Yeah. Yeah. Jewish tradition says he suffered martyrdom, uh, possibly sometime in the reign of Manasseh, by being sawn in two. Well, there Oof. you go. And there's a there's two pictures on the Google search, which 
Um, one of each half? No. One of him being sawn. I imagine if, if you wanted to saw someone in half, this is not where the discussion needed to go. But if you wanted to do saw someone in half, how would you saw them in half? Through what plane would you saw them? Well, it depends um, what your goal is here. Well, I'd do what the magicians do. I'd let, get them to lie down on a table and then do a do a slice through their well. I mean, their belly. come on, as as a physicist and mathematician, you've got to do better than that. Your definition of half can't be that lax. Well, there's one picture. We have to, it has to be down the center. There's one presumably very old artwork that's replicated on Google that that shows him halfway. The saw's halfway through him, and they've gone from the top of the head and they're down to the chest. Right, yeah. Well, Luke, I agree with you. That is that is more approximate, more approximate. The other, the other picture is from them starting in his groin, cutting up. Well, all I can say is that there's gross inconsistency with this prehistoric journalism, and that they need to get their act together. Yeah, I don't think that the exact direction they cut him in half matters, but it's probably not relevant. Coming back to the point. Just It just triggered something in my mind about past mm. tense and God's servant. If you're pre-Messiah, I mean, the prophets, we, we also look at the prophets as all pointing towards the Messiah. Mm. Sort of, you know, there was a line of prophets that ended with John and then the Messiah came. Mm. Um, and they were all servants of God, you know. So maybe this is, in addition to being Messianic, um, this is also talking about this is what happens to prophets in particular. Well, you wonder if it could have been. Uh, we know that we know that with some of the Old Testament texts, particularly some of the ones that were oral traditions transcribed at a later date, that that multiple sources were used. And if anyone wants to check this, they can go look at the story before and after the David and Goliath, where there's some really odd inconsistencies in chronology that suggests multiple sources were used. But, you know, it would be possible to imagine that maybe if Isaiah was sawn in half, maybe this could have been penned after his death by one of his, the keepers of his writings, one of his, you know, disciples, as a commentary on Isaiah. The Jews obviously believed in an afterlife as well. So writing about how someone was treated and how they will be exalted after they're dead makes sense. Yeah. It, but it's it's I agree with you. But there is something a little bit interesting because in 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 Isaiah fifty three that we read through, you get to verse nine. He'd done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Um, and then verse ten. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Well, again, there's no reason that can't take place after death. So, okay, that's true. But it's, so two things. Firstly, he's just been killed without descendants. And then once he's been made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants and will enjoy a long life. What's well, like Abraham being the father of, of a great nation. Yeah, that's true. Um, but if you're, if you're killed without descendants, it's hard to see how that works. But the other thing that's happened here yeah, is that in verse ten, it's it's flitch, it's switched back over to um, he will, he will enjoy a long life, yeah. he will be satisfied. My righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted. He will bear all their sins. It switches back to a an anticipatory yeah. type mm. tone, and the the cutting backwards and forwards between what has happened, he was led, and yet he he will bear all their sins. This. 
this cut in tense, to me, actually places me as the reader right in the moment. Yeah. You're sort of, the confusion of past mm. and future actually puts you right into the presence of the moment. And I think it's one of the reasons why this passage feels so vivid. It, it, it has, I mean, for a long time, and to Christian readers, has seemed particularly vivid. I don't think that um, we took a tally yet, but there's a lot of these verses made it into Handel's Messiah. Mm. A lot of them. So, and frankly, a lot of these phrases are quoted in, by the New Testament authors. There's a, there's a very good reason mm. why when re, we read through this passage, we see it so vividly as messianic. Mm. The early Christians saw it as messianic mm. and described their experiences, made sense of their observations of the life and events surrounding Jesus, partly by using passages like this. You know, he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Verse 9, a really specific sort of detail, um, and one that uh, the, the gospel writers make quite a big deal of in, in what they see very vividly as a fulfillment of even that small detail. So I, I'm wondering whether there's a con- part of the construction with this juxtaposition between past and future that actually helps draw us right in and may actually be leading to an emphasis that is worth listening to and and putting aside some of this, the technical inconsistencies here to do with timing and chronology. Mm. Of course, in the context of Christ, the idea that we are his descendants, that his followers that come after him, uh, we are the body of Christ, uh, that... that uh, after the suffering of his soul, uh, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Uh, you know, there is something in there that very much suggests a resurrection. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. Um, I, I mean, yes, it's obviously messianic. Mm. I mean, it's so obviously messianic to people who've grown up as Christians that it it's almost hard to discuss that element of it. We set out to do that in this podcast so far, and we really haven't. Yeah. Because what is there to say? Except, yeah, it's about Jesus. Well, one thing to, Obviously. One thing to say is that I would feel more comfortable if passages of this sort were referred to more often as an illustration of the um, evidence of, of the spirit at work in the old testament and and the authenticity and the reliability of the bible i i these passages speak to me the ones where you count the days and the weeks and the numbers and the hours uh speak less to me the fact that god can do arithmetic uh the fact that he can do arithmetic is not even though i enjoy maths um a reason for me to love him or to worship him right are you saying that the fact that he carries our sorrows and they and he lets them weigh him down yeah and um he take he accepts the punishment the fact that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent Mm. yeah you're finding that that uh, yeah that speaks that's interesting is is of more significance spiritually than than calculating an exact date for yeah. Something. Yeah. I'm not I'm not sure what is so impressive about God being able to line up some dates. Right. Uh, what I mean is you could imagine a disinterested God quite capable of doing that. Uh so the I don't have I can imagine myself being capable of doing that. Well, I'm not very capable yeah, yeah, of doing I'm gonna, that. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm I do it all the time. I go I'm going to be doing this thing at this time on yeah, this day. Yeah. 
The, re- the It's not hard. That's right. For me to predict what you're going to do is harder, Luke, but for you to predict what you're going to do is less hard. Yeah, I I, I mean that said, I don't I don't achieve it with 100% accuracy. No, I don't. And <laughs> um, I, I do very poorly. We we put a skit on in the staff room uh, at the school I was at uh, where we it's a good, very good school where we pay a lot of attention to student special needs and uh, this was a skit uh, done in the same style of some of the meetings we have where we discuss students but it was addressing the special needs of staff and uh, you know so for instance Nick our assistant principal has um, been allocated a one-on-one aid for some time that's his personal assistant um, you know he's been allocated an aid for some time she's doing a really good job of keeping him in line and all this and the the one about myself was that uh, that Cameron is is you know tries to think outside the box and be creative, but he, he just cannot organise himself. Uh, and that if he's disorganised around the school and he doesn't know where he's going, just give his wife a call. She's very supportive at home, anxious to <laughs> anxious to make sure that he arrives at school with what he needs. <laughs> it was a fun fun thing. I I found myself startled by encountering this theme of eyes and ears yet again. Yeah. Just just draw your attention back to there. This is verse 15 of Isaiah 52. Mm. And he will it's startle many stuff. nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Yeah. It's, it's synesthesia. It's really mixing the senses up there. Yeah, and and also it it is it is the opposite of what we've seen in a lot of Isaiah, where it's where they'll be told, but they won't understand, and they they'll see yeah. but they won't perceive, or you know, this is the opposite. They'll perceive without seeing. Yeah. they'll understand without hearing. Or... So, uh, taking the messianic theme, what that brings to my mind is is particularly some of the sort of the trial of Jesus. Mm. But, but also there's this general idea, kings standing speechless in his presence, they, they will understand what they have not heard about. They might not be from the chosen people of Israel, yeah. right? They might not have heard about the coming of a Messiah and yet confronting it face to face, they will understand. They'll understand what they haven't even been told about. You know, like the Roman centurion. That's a, that's a good idea. You know, I was thinking while you were talking, Locke, about, uh, about this metaphor Basically, although the metaphor is used in different ways and sometimes people, it's foretold that they won't see and sometimes God complains they won't see and sometimes he says they could see if they only chose to, sort of, and one day they will see and um, here they're going to understand without seeing. Uh, Throughout it all, and this is really something that pervades the Old Testament as a whole and the New Testament, um, uh, is is that the universe is a bigger place than we can grasp with our senses. Hmm. Mm. There's there's stuff happening that we don't know about, and here's two interesting analogies uh, for it. One, there's a there's a TED talk on YouTube of a guy who was born um, completely colorblind. That is, he saw in grayscale, and he uh, got his friends at age twenty to build a small sensor on his forehead that could sense color and translate it into pitch. So then he had a little earpiece in his ear, and it would go. As he was scanning, looking around the room, and he could move his this sensor across a painting, and it really like difficult to understand noise. He said for the first two or three months, it was exhausting, like totally wrecked. And then after about two months, he stopped hearing it. 
It was there, and if he concentrated, he could hear it, but it was it, his brain was filtered into the background. And within a year, he was having all sorts of weird experiences. He, he developed favourite colours. Um, he started dreaming in colour. He then started getting reverse effects where he would hear noises like a car horn going off and associate it with a colour. It was like trained synesthesia. Um, and and when his concept of colour, I guess like our concept of colour, is, is tied to objects. Like green is what grass and trees and all these things are. But it, it would associate ideas in his mind that he wasn't aware of. But the interesting part about his talk was, is he, is he said he it changed his world in an amazing way, having this extra insight that he'd never had before. And he used to spend hours in art galleries, loved Picasso with bright colours, big block colours that he could move his sensor across and get a real sense of what was happening. And um, so then anyway, after a year or two, he went back to his friend who was the computer scientist who built this gadget and asked him, could he please expand the spectrum so that now he sees in, in infrared and ultraviolet, which of course we can't do. So he can walk outside of the house and know if he's going to get sunburned. Or he can tell when he's under UV surveillance because he can he can see in inverted commas in infrared, uh, which fascinating. Which nearly everything that. can see in infrared. They've only uh, uh, sorry in ultra. I'm not sure about infrared, but in ultraviolet, heaps of animals can see in ultraviolet. They've only just recently discovered that many Australian marsupials have fur that glows under UV light. I remember, I remember reading some articles about that. So that they live in a world that's just perceived differently to us. It's really weird for mammals to have iridescent UV iridescent fur. But uh, so, for instance, Tassie devils, the fur inside their ears and the white part around their nose iridesces um, under under UV light. And this is true for many other marsupials. And we're not quite sure why. We we are, I think, certain that the animals can see. In ultraviolet, so it says some function, but it, it just goes to show. Maybe, maybe they they identify each other. Yeah, yeah. Somehow, but or it's part of that. It just goes to show, without reference to the spiritual world, it just within the physical world that we live in, there are things that we are not seeing and not understanding, and they're sort of in front of us, or at least we sort of see it. We see the Tasmanian devil, but we don't understand mm. what it's like for the Tassie devil. Um, the other advi- uh, the other example I was going to give, what was that uh, about uh, seeing? Oh yes, uh, why is it that we why do we perceive color as a wheel? Why why is it that we feel that when you get to blue and go to purple and you go in further into the purple that it begins to look more red? It starts to look red again, and then you can go yeah, around the cycle not, that again. That doesn't make sense, right? Because color is a linear spectrum. Color is a linear. Spectrum. Red's from, at one end and purple is yeah. the other yeah. end. Yeah, and so. Color is not the color wheel is not a thing which is there in nature. It's only a thing that's there in our minds. It's a quirk of how we perceive things, and it has to do with the biology of the eye. The the you have the three different types of is it rods or cones? I can't remember that that effectively register red, green, blue, which is why and it's why using red, green, and blue you can simulate any color, because when yellow light enters into your eye. It lights up a bit of the red and a bit of the green sensors in your eye. And so if I feed into your eye a bit of red and a bit of green, your eye thinks it's yellow because that's what yellow light mm. does. But in point of fact, it's not yellow. It's red and green. Um, and uh, so already we're not seeing what's actually there. But the ones that sense, the sensors that respond to red light only respond to red light. The sensors that respond to green light only respond to green light. But the senses we have that sense blue 
respond to blue light very strongly and also a tiny bit to red light. Hmm. So there is in the biology of an our, of our eye something reminiscent about the having red light as an input in blue light. Like there's there's a quirk of our biology basically that makes that makes it uh, feel similar to us to see purple and red light, but it's not true. That's something part of our perception. Two examples from the natural world where what we're seeing is not what is actually there. And one of the messages from the prophets is that that we are never f- fully seeing what's actually happening in the world. I, I just find it fascinating that the brain kind of doesn't care what provides the input. Yeah. Because we know as well that mental de- um, decline in your senses... Yeah precedes mental decline yeah particularly in, in elderly yeah. cases what actually precipitates a lot of mental decline yeah. is because the brain isn't getting the input it used to the input is actually what's keeping it functioning yeah. and healthy they did a study Luke where people wore vests and and the researchers could send them messages and the messengers had little pressure points that would press into their chest at different places so as as they're like walking around they'd be getting these weird like presses on their like someone, mm. the, it's like having a bunch of fingers that could be re- remotely activated to poke them in different parts. And within the space of months, they learnt the meanings attached to the different combinations of presses. They weren't trying mm. to, they just, hmm. it just happened. The, it, the, the brain the learned brain to accommodate it. it. Out. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the fact that that guy could develop a favourite colour. Yeah. His brain could could preference a color yeah. based on a on an audible yeah. input, not a visual one. Yeah, and then is is incredible. And then you could go the other way. There's a book that I that I have here that Ken's dad sent me actually, uh, called Seeing Voices, and it comes from the title comes from a bottom in a Midsummer Night's Dream, who says, "Ah, I can see a voice, and I can hear my Thisby's face." Which is could have almost come out of this passage in Isaiah with the mixed senses, and but it's a study of sign language as a language and how completely we have underestimated. Deaf people do not mm. see themselves as disabled; they see themselves as of another culture. And he mm. he talks about the appalling discrimination against deaf people and and the nuances of the language. And it's a really interesting book. But as part of his research, he went to a remote or a historically remote. Uh, village in US where there was basically through inbreeding a lot of genetic um, a, a third more than a third of the town was deaf um, and so everyone spoke sign in the town uh, whether you could hear or not and all sorts of interesting things you know he spoke to one lady about her uncle for at least half an hour and then said um, was he deaf and she said oh let me see it's been a while since he died let me think uh, yes I think he was deaf uh, because it was of <laughs> so little consequence. And he hmm. visited people in the old folks' home matter. who were speaking out loud, like some old people do when they become less inhibited, except they were signing out loud. So they, they were inadvertently talking in sign or sleep-talking in sign. Wow. And, and people, you, you would see conversations around the town where where the people would be get halfway through a joke and then tell the punchline in sign because it was funnier in sign. <laughs> and then he had one experience 
He had one experience where he visited a university that was... He happened to arrive on the day of a student protest. It was a deaf university. And for the second time running, the board had appointed a non-deaf president of the university. And the deaf students had had enough of this. And they they were and they were they were like placards and barricading the university and some some there was obviously some of the students who were particularly eloquent one of the staff members who was who was um a fluent signer was with him to interpret and said oh oh you you know if you could you should listen to this guy he is fantastic so eloquent um with his sign <laughs> but what what the what the author of the book noted as he's walking around this university where there are a thousand conversations happening at once uh, was that he felt deaf because mm. he was seeing because he didn't understand he was seeing but not understanding he was yeah. he was in a he was the deaf person in the room it, it, yes i mean that is how you feel when you perceive that communication is taking place yeah. but you don't know what yeah. is being communicated yeah so i'd like to just ponder on that theme a moment cam those are really cool anecdotes and very interesting stories and I'm thinking vividly of the disciples of Jesus after the crucifixion and resurrection who are on the road to Emmaus and they they walk and share their sorrows with a traveler and they only realize at the end of their day's journey that yeah. the traveler is the resurrected Jesus. And it absolutely upends yeah. the entire picture of everything. You know, they were talking through the prophets. Yeah. Um, they were talking through the things that they knew, that they had heard, that they had understood they they were people who had who had heard and not understood and who had seen and not comprehended and then on the flip side as you said there's a roman centurion there's a roman centurion who comes mm. to jesus to get a a servant healed and there's the roman soldier at the foot of the cross who has a particularly vivid sort of eye-opening response we use woman. this phrase eye-opening mm. yes and i just think what does that have to say to us in the context of what you've just said about even in the physical realm, there being things which, which we don't see, we feel totally normal and then we don't see them. Or if you shift the context a little bit, it changes completely the, the sense. Um, we're looking at Isaiah 53 and we've commented that it's just, it's just obviously messianic to our ears, to our, to our um, cultural uh, um, reactions to, to this passage. I guess it's hard for us to read this and see ourselves in either of those camps. The Roman soldiers who are understanding what they had not heard about. Or the disciples on the way to, road to Emmaus who had heard but not understood. Hmm. Um, we're sort of bizarrely in neither of those categories. Is that is that an indictment on us, Locke? Uh, because... because is it the case? And I've, I've never thought of phrasing it in these terms, but you do sort of get the feeling, growing up an Adventist, that uh, it's important to have a conversion experience. And that moment when it just makes sense is really good. And then once it all makes sense, uh, that experience doesn't really come again uh, because you now understand all of it and you agree to the fundamentals and you know how to keep the Sabbath and you know exactly what order things will happen in the end time. So you've basically got things buttoned up and and all your job is really for the rest of your life then is just to keep on knowing those things. Mm. Uh, of course, the disciples who met Christ on the Emmaus Road, that wasn't the end. That, that I mean, the New Testament church is like one continual roller coaster rather than being challenged in 
different ways and different ways and different ways and different ways is should it be the case that we should identify with uh, some of these people? Maybe there, maybe there are many things that we've seen that we just haven't understood yet, and there will be a time in the future when, when it clicks into place and we'll, we'll just say, oh, yeah. I, I remember, Locke, you saying when you lived in Germany that initially conversations on the bus were just noise, mm. and then there came a point in time when you realised that even if you didn't know what the words mean, you could identify the sounds as separate words. Yeah, yeah, and then I could pick individual words that I that I was learning in my vocabulary, yeah. and the the final sort of step of that experience was when I was sitting on the bus and realised that I could not stop, I could not prevent myself eavesdropping on a conversation. Mm. My brain was decoding it. I could understand it. Yeah, Luke, you've learnt another language too. Um, I'm the odd one out here in this conversation. Well, I. While you were talking about this, it reminded it was reminding me of um, there was a couple of things, a couple of observations. One, I was reminded of a pod, one of the episodes we did way back now, where you you were talking about the Roman centurion. He was part of that, and he was part of a sort of a group of three in which their standing within the Hebrew society was inversely proportional to their faith. Yeah, and I can't help but feel that Adventism has a little bit of the same problem in that your standing with Adventist society tends to be a bit inversely proportional to your faith. Well, it's certainly possible if it's... Reco- if- um, and just just to remind people what I'm talking about here, you had the, the church leader whose daughter was dying and who needed Jesus to come and heal her. And Jesus had to come to his house to do it. And then you had the woman, the the unclean woman who felt she just had to touch Jesus's clothes and she would be healed. And then you had the Roman centurion who knew that all he had to do was ask Hmm. because Jesus commanded servants like he did. Hmm. An interesting, an interesting connection to Isaiah today as well. Um, And, and I think, um, you know, one of the great flaws in, in Adventism is is the sort of um, post-doubt. I don't know if I, either of you are very familiar with the term post-history. I've heard it. It was this sort of idea that, that history was over. Western civilization had won and that had happened and everything was just going to keep getting better because we'd, we'd solved it and th- that was the system. Yeah. That's the best one. It's just there's not going to be any more great conflicts between different ideologies or, or ways of organizing a society or an economy or whatever. And that thing that, that, that a lot of people sort of subconsciously or consciously ascribe to blinded them to the fact that it was untrue. Mm. So they did not see, they didn't perceive, they didn't understand that, no, just because the Soviet Union collapsed didn't mean history had quote-unquote ended. And I think Adventism has a similar thing where we believe that the search for biblical truth has quote-unquote ended. Yeah, yeah. And it blinds us to the fact that we don't see. Because one, one, one of the major things that people, that we don't perceive, Cam, yeah. talking about just mundane things, but this also applies spiritually, we don't see our own assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that this is actually a point where we, we might even be able to wrap this one up. Mm. Because we're, 
more than half of the way through the book of Isaiah. And just for limitations of, of time, we haven't been tracking chapter by chapter through every single chapter, but we have almost deliberately avoided dwelling too heavily on the messianic elements until about this episode. And instead, we've been actually letting ourselves engage with parts of Isaiah. We've all commented over the last few weeks, hey, this is actually a little bit harder than I thought it was going to be. I've thought of Isaiah as being reasonably safe, reasonably tame, reasonably comfortable. Why am I struggling with this and with that? And Mm. um, I think that we need to be really open to the fact that that is one of the ways we keep our ears and our eyes open. And even when we come here in Isaiah 53, vividly messianic to our, our listening ears, um, we, we need to remember not to just chop it out from everything else that has come. This is amazing. And this is the servant of the Lord as is so is so meek and he's yeah. led like a lamb. But like we have to remember to, um, also to that it's clear to us we have the aid of hindsight. Uh, we have to remember yeah. that serious thinking people, people like Nicodemus, who, when we talk about like as a Pharisee, we say the Seventh Adventists keep the law. We got nothing on the Pharisees. So serious, devout pe- people of intelligence and good intent found this hard. Hmm. And people who dedicated their whole lives yeah, to study, yeah, and thought about, and we else. think it's easy. Um, and there's a couple of warnings in that. One is be gentle when you evangelize because you don't know how hard the jump is that you're asking people to do. But the other thing is the questions that we might be avoiding as a church because they're just a bit too hard, um, hmm. or or if we personally shy away from things that make us feel uncomfortable, maybe one day they'll just seem really obvious. I heard a really cool comment on a podcast by Alan Alda a few weeks ago and he said I know that I am not really listening to someone unless I'm ready to have them change my mind on something yeah mm. yeah oh that's a fantastic thought as well well my one was simply to state that nothing worth doing is easy ah and my one was to state that you don't know what it is that you don't know that sounds like something out of Yes Minister. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll leave it there um, and uh, give ourselves a, a kind of job in the edit and leave all that, you know, subsequent summaries and thoughts and uh, feedback to our wonderful listeners who can email us at the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And we haven't had uh, many comments. Uh, things went quiet a bit over the, the Christmas break and they're just uh, winding up. As always, uh, if you find the podcast helpful, then then share it with your friends. Uh, if you if you find it annoying, share it with people you don't like. And uh, we hope that you at least join us again next week as we continue talking about these, these topics. And we hope that you find it interesting and that uh, you get a blessing out of, out of the, our discussions.